Hallelujah. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. What I want to do, I'm going to share in a series, and I'm going to take a lot of this teaching from the book of Ephesians, but we're going to talk about redemption and what redemption is. And, um, you know, I know that some people, that's a theological term, and I'm uh, not big into teaching on just, uh, you know, theoretical things. I like things that are real practical. But if you understand redemption, redemption is super practical. And we need to understand completely what God has redeemed us from. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about and starting tonight is that there are some things that we're already redeemed from. Some of our redemption is complete and other parts of our redemption isn't complete. It's off in the future. And anyway, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think that this will really, really help you. In Ephesians chapter 1... In verse uh, 14, 7 and 14, it uses the word redemption, and we're going we're gonna to look specifically at those verses. But I want to put this in context for you. Uh, the book of Ephesians is a powerful book, and it is written from a totally different perspective than most of the other books in the Bible, and it is absolutely just like upside down from the way that most Christians think today. Most Christians see that God has this power and this ability, but they think that we have to do things in order to get God to move. And we have to uh, do certain things to move God. We have this saying that, you know, faith moves God. I want you to know that God isn't the one that's stuck. God doesn't need to move. You don't need to move God. Now, I understand what people are trying to say, but it really shows that there's a wrong understanding about God. The truth is that the Lord has already done everything. He's anticipated every problem that you will ever have, and He's already supplied it. He's already dealt with everything. When it comes time for you to be born again, Jesus doesn't come and die for you so that He can forgive your sins. He forgave your sins 2,000 years ago before you were ever born and before you ever committed sins. Likewise, the Lord doesn't heal you in response to whether you confess the Word and whether you do certain things. The Scripture says, 1 Peter 2.24, By His stripes we were healed. God has already done everything about healing you that needs to be done. You don't have to ask God to heal you. You don't have to petition God. You don't have to say, Oh, God, stretch forth your hand and heal. God has already done that. God has already blessed you with all spiritual blessings, what it says right here in Ephesians. This is what Ephesians is doing. Ephesians is talking about what God has already done and telling us that we need to get a revelation of what we already have, and it's up to you. God works it in, and we have to work out what God has placed on the inside of us. But the average Christian today doesn't have this mindset. Instead, what they do, they believe that God can do anything. He has done nothing, but He could do it. And so we start petitioning Him. And if we don't see it manifest, then we get other people to agree with us and put more pressure on God. And basically, this is what the body of Christ has done with the revival, thinking that it's up to God to send revival. And for whatever reason, God hadn't sent it yet. And so what we've got to do is get a million people together to put pressure on God and not let go until God sends revival. And I tell you, it's a totally wrong concept. The book of Ephesians is written from a completely opposite mindset. 
So we're going to talk about this redemption, but I want to put this into perspective. Let's just start reading with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, notice the terminology, it's past tense, who hath, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is old English here that I'm reading out of the King James, but all this is saying is that God has blessed us with spiritual things, things that may not be discernible to your physical eyes. You may not be able to see it or feel it, but in the spiritual realm, God has done everything that you will ever need. You don't need God to touch you. You don't need a touch from God. You don't need more anointing. You don't need more faith. You don't need joy. You don't need peace. God has already done everything. He's already blessed you. When you get born again in the spirit realm, you have everything that God is and everything that He has to offer. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, As He is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. Not are we going to be. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, not to us. Most Christians think when we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be. Boy, God is going to, we're going to be complete. In the Spirit, you're already complete. You've already got everything. You're already blessed with everything. The only thing is we got a little peanut brain up here that doesn't know what we've got. And we are dominated and controlled by our sight and feelings to where we don't go by what spiritual reality is. We are more dominated by what we feel out here. But in the Spirit realm, every one of you that have been born again are identical to the Lord Jesus. You already have power. You already have faith. You already have anointing. You have everything that you could possibly need. All spiritual blessings have been given unto us. We got it. Notice it says, it ha- He hath blessed us. It's past tense. It's already been done. In the Greek, that's an aortis tense, which means it is an a done deal, accomplished fact. It's over. God is not in the process of trying to bless you. You're already blessed. And yet how many Christians, oh God, please bless me. You're asking God to do something that he's already done. Oh God, please heal me. He says by his stripes you're already healed. Oh God, come and be with us. He says I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am. And yet we are asking God to come and be with us. And then when we get through, oh God, go with us as we leave this place. Those are stupid prayers. (laughs) It's just silly, the stuff that we do. And And it illustrates and reveals that we really don't understand what we have in the spiritual realm. So look, he just says this over and over. Every one of these verses is going to be saying the same thing. So he's talked about we're already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now he begins to expound on that and show you what some of those spiritual things that we've received are. In verse 4, he says, according as his. And this word according as means to the proportion of or to the degree of. In other words, you want to know how blessed you are? Here's how blessed you are. It's in proportion to. 
the faith as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Did you know most of these words just go right over the heads of the average Christian? They think, what does this mean? That he chose me before the foundation of the world. Well, just to boil it down and make it simple without going into a great theological thing, God in his foreknowledge knew that mankind was going to rebel at him. And it says in Colossians that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So he already had the plan of salvation. Before he ever created man, he knew that we were going to mess up everything. And he went ahead and created us. And you know, most of us think, well, if I'd have been God, and if I'd have known that my creation was going to destroy everything, I don't think I would have done it. The Lord was able to anticipate that there was going to be war and destruction and death and mayhem and suffering and hurt and pain, and yet He went ahead and created this. You know why? Because He not only saw the bad that could happen, but he saw the people that would receive him. He saw the people. He, in Christ, what he did was choose Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And he says, every person who will accept my son as their Savior, I'm going to forgive and make them holy and without blame through what my son does. And he wanted the relationship with us. So much that he's willing to put up with all of the other suffering and everything else. You know, I don't know about you, but in our society today, we've got all of this media and everything that is just bombarding us with negative things constantly. You hear about every terrible thing. They just make stuff up if they have to. I heard... uh, I mean, it's true that they do make it up. We had a bomb, uh, not a bomb scare, but we had somebody send us some powder, baking powder is what it was, or cornstarch. But they they said it was uh, a bio uh, weapon or something like this, and it turned out the guy had his address on the envelope. And when we checked it out, the FBI, he was marked as one of the weirdos that has been threatening and doing stuff. So, man, they took it serious, and they locked us down and did all of this stuff. But you should have seen the reports. Jamie and I were at home. And we heard about this over the television. <laughs> that the Andrew Womack Ministries was locked down. And so we started looking. To, and they reported stuff. They made up stuff. There was nothing going on. They said there was hundreds of Bible college students trapped in there. And nobody could leave. Bible school was already over. They were all gone. They were talking about that they believed it was a disgruntled employee that had done this who was mad at us and trying. They reported, they just made stuff up. And then when none of it turned out to be true, they didn't retract anything. I'm telling you, you're being lied to systematically. If you're watching the news so that you can be informed, you are one of the most misinformed people on the face of this earth. You are being lied to. Propaganda is being put out. But nonetheless, they're just saying all of this negative stuff. And you know, sometimes if you aren't careful, you'll get to thinking, God, we're losing. world's going to hell in a handbasket. And you could get really cynical. You could get really morbid. But you know what? You've got to have this attitude of God. God saw every rotten thing that would ever happen. Just think of the hurt and the pain represented by the people in this room. 
Man, you've seen people die. You've suffered divorce. You've suffered children turning against you. You've, we've all suffered physical things. We've, just think of all the hurt that's in this room. Most of us, if we could have seen and anticipated this, would have said it's not worth it. But see, God, when He created the heavens and the earth, He saw the light that it was good. He didn't focus on the dark. He focused on the light. That's the way that God is. God calls those things which be not as though they are. God told us to think on things that are honest, pure, lovely, just, of good report. If there's virtue and praise, God is like that. Did you know, here's the point that I'm trying to get across. He's talking about how we are already blessed. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He saw that there would be people just like you and me who would accept His Son. And He says, it's worth it all for you. And the Lord made you holy and without blame. There's a difference between being without sin and being without blame. We aren't sinless. We aren't perfect. But we are without blame before Him. Man, that's awesome. That is awesome to think that God chose you like that. And in verse 5 it says, He has predestinated us. Now again, some of these words. You know, there's only four times in the Bible that the word predestinate or predestination is used. Four times. Two of them are right here. In Ephesians chapter 1, two of them in Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30. It's not a big doctrine and the key to predestination is Romans 8, 29 that says those who he foreknew he predestinated. He didn't predestinate every person. Only the people who he foreknew, who he chose in Christ, the people that he knew would accept Jesus, he has predestinated, predetermined, It is irrevocable that if you are in Christ, you are going to be conformed to the image of His Son. If you will cooperate with Him, you can be conformed right here in this life and you can walk in victory and blessing. If you don't cooperate with Him, well then when you die, you're going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye and you're going to become like Him. That's all that that's talking about. It's not saying that He's predestinated you to be sick. God willed for you to be a a dud. God willed for you to fail. God willed for your marriage to fall apart. God willed for this person to be saved and this person to be lost. That's not true. All of that extreme teaching on predestination and sovereignty that God controls everything, that's not what the Bible teaches. It just says those who He foreknew, Romans 8, 29, He predestinated you to be conformed to the image of His Son. And this is referring to that. That when he saw that there were going to be people who would accept Jesus as a Savior, all of those people who accepted him, he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He has already predestinated us to adoption. You know, my mother was adopted. She was deserted at birth. And uh, she'll be turning 95 here in just a couple of months. And she, I, I believe one of the reasons that my mother has lived a healthy life, and she's still living by herself and taking care of herself, and one of the reasons is because, you know what, she honored her father and mother. Again, today, in our secular, humanistic society, and in <laughs> some of you will be really blessed by this, but it's the truth, in our secular, humanistic Christianity 
which doesn't look at spiritual causes, but we, if you listen to the typical Christian radio or Christian television station, they'll have as many programs on health and nutrition as they do on the Word. And we are trying to find a physical, organic reason for everything. The Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. The Bible says honor your father and mother that you'll live long. It always amuses me that when they go study the Japanese and find out that they eat a lot of fish, that immediately, that's it. The reason that they have the lowest heart uh, problems in the world is because they eat a lot of fish. Why don't they ever look at the fact that the Japanese honor their parents to the point that they actually worship ancestors? Oh, well, that's not scientific. It's the truth, though. Did you know my mother honored her adopted parents, and because of that, I mean, I believe that's one reason that God gave her a long life. We don't want to include those things, but that's what the Scripture says. But anyway, here's my point. is She was adopted, and when she was a little kid, people used to make fun of her and say, you're adopted. And you know, she had a great attitude. My dad, he wanted to go hire an investigator to find out who her real family was because when the year after she was born, the courthouse burned and her, she lost her birth certificate and she never, she never knew who her birth family was. And so my dad wanted to hire an investigator and find all this stuff out. And she says, why would I want to find out who my natural family was? says, they didn't want me. She says, it's not a problem. She says, I've got a great family. I've got parents that love me. And when kids would make fun of her and say, you're adopted, she, her response was, my parents chose me. Your parents had to take what they got. <laughs> she always felt special because she was adopted. Somebody chose her that didn't have to have her. They went out of their way. And she always took that as a great statement of love. You know what? We have been adopted by uh, a God who we've done nothing but be a problem to. And yet he adopted us. He loved us. And notice it says uh, that all of this is according to the good pleasure of his will. He didn't do this out of a sense of debt and obligation. He felt sorry for us. We're his creation. He has some responsibility. He's got to do something to fix this mess. After all, he started the whole thing. No, it wasn't like that at all. This is the pleasure of his good will. God loves you. God pursued you. God has suffered with Hitler and Mussolini and Saddam Hussein and Pharaohs and every manic person that has been in history and he's suffered with all of that because you're worth it. Man, that's good news. That's awesome news. Somebody says, but oh, there's so much more bad than there is good. The Bible says that when you see the glory of God that's revealed in us, it's the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared. Again, we're, we aren't hearing the good stuff. You know, I was visiting with Will down here. We went golfing today and then we ate and I was visiting with Will. He's a pastor here and he was telling me about some of the things happening and where was that Ghana and miracles and things happening and people that have given their life and they're seeing... There's a person who went down there buying these girls that were sold into the sex trade and buying them out and has started a work and is uh, raising the babies and doing these things. And people that are giving their life for the gospel, things like that are happening millions and millions and millions of times all over the world. 
We've got Pastor Derry and Karen Jolly here. They'll be sharing in the morning. They've got this Ambassadors to the Nations that has a table out there. And they're sponsoring thousands of children on a monthly basis and putting them through school and building schools and changing people's lives. Man, there's good things happening. We don't hear about all of the good. All we do is hear about all of the bad stuff. But I'm telling you that God looks through all of this stuff and all of the suffering and the terrible things in this world aren't even worthy to be compared with the wonderful things that are happening. God sees you as worth all of the hurt and all of the pain and all of the tragedy that's going on. This is the pleasure of His goodwill. God's not ignorant of all of the things that were going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and yet it was well worth it to get us. That places a worth and a value on you that most of us haven't ascribed to ourselves. Man, that's awesome. In verse 6 it says that uh, this is the good pleasure of His will. In verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in His blood. All of this is to the grace of God. We don't deserve this. It's not because He looked at us and saw us that we were just so wonderful He had to have us. It was because of His love, mercy, and grace that He feels this way towards us. And notice it says that He hath, past tense, already made you accepted in the Beloved. You know, really, that is a super understatement. The word, the Greek word that is used right here is only used twice in the New Testament. The other place that this was used is in Luke chapter 1, and I forget the exact verse, but it's where the angel appeared unto Mary, and Gabriel said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. The word highly favored is the only other time that this Greek word was used, and that's what it means. So when it says that He has made us accepted in the Beloved, He has made us highly favored. It's the same thing. Mary hadn't got a thing on a single one of us. Every one of us have been made accepted, highly favored in the Beloved. We are blessed. He has made us accepted. God has accepted you. Boy, that's good news. In verse 7, in whom we have redemption. Notice it says we have redemption. This is something that is already a present tense reality. It's a done deal. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. What is redemption? Well, you can go into a lot of theological things. Thayer says that it is the um, releasing benefit and liberating effect that is procured through paying a ransom. But you know what? It's basically just the forgiveness of sins. And it notice that it says that it has already been done. You have already been forgiven all sins. I'm going to come back and expound on that. But notice that this forgiveness of sins is something that has already happened and it's according to the riches of His grace. God didn't forgive your sins based on your goodness, on the fact that you deserved it. It is based on His grace. In verse 8, wherein he hath abounded. Here it is again, hath, past tense. He's already abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Again, most people struggle with this because they say, wait a minute. I don't have wisdom and prudence. And it seems like I'm constantly doing dumb stuff and I just make mistakes all of the time. I, I, oh God, give me wisdom and prudence. Well, the Bible says he's already done it. How do you understand this? 
Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says, Put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 1 John chapter 2 verse 20 says, You have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Some people say, I don't know all things. If you come to our Bible school, we'll give you a test and we'll show you that you don't know all things. So people say, well, I don't understand what the Bible means. The Bible is so hard. It also says 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. And people say, man, I don't have the mind of Christ. I can't even find my glasses when they're on my head. I can't find my car keys. I, I forget all kinds of things. It's talking about in the spirit, man. In the spirit, you know everything that Jesus knows. You have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. You have the mind of Christ. It's true. You know, I'll probably teach on this sometime this week. I'd love to teach on this anyway. But you've got to understand that there is a spiritual part of you. And when the Bible says that you know all things, you have the mind of Christ, most of us search our physical bodies and our emotion realm to see, is it true what God says about us? And if we can't perceive it with our little peanut brain, then we think it doesn't exist. But there is a spirit part of you that you can't know apart from just looking into the Word of God. This is talking about in the spirit realm. You have already got wisdom and prudence. And let me just, I hadn't got time to explain this. I've got teachings on this out there that would help you. But you know what? When you come into a bind, when you come into a place where you need wisdom... If you could understand that you've got all of the wisdom of God, the mind of Christ right here on the inside of you, then this is one reason why praying in tongues is so important because it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, when you pray in tongues, your spirit prays. The part of you that has the mind of Christ, the wisdom and the prudence of God. And it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, that when you pray in tongues, pray also that you may interpret So when you need wisdom, all you have to do is start praying in tongues and instantly your spirit that has the mind of Christ and knows all things is praying and all you've got to do is pray that you interpret and God will show you what to do. Thank you for that thunderous silence. There's a lot of people that believe that speaking in tongues is just something you do to get a goosebump. To show that you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And once you do that, well, there's no more point in praying in tongues. Or you do it sometimes if you want to fight against the devil. But they don't understand that when you're praying in tongues, it's your born-again spirit praying and you can interpret it. You know, when we bought our building, uh, we moved from a little uh, place of 14,600 square feet into a 110,000 square foot building. And I mean, God, we're just about filled it up now. Matter of fact, we've actually been talking about what's our next step. But when we moved in there, uh, there was only 10,000 square feet that was finished out and we had to finish out the rest of it. It was going to be a $3.2 million building program. And so when we bought the building, the banker that we used told us that we had a construction loan for the rest of this $3.2 million finish and he assured me, he says, I wouldn't have loaned you the money for this other thing if, you, if we hadn't already approved your construction loan. He says, you'll have the money next week. He said that every week for nine months. 
And after nine months, it had gone so long, he says, let's start all over. Let's get a new appraisal. Let's do this. And boy, our Bible college was maxed out. We were just being choked by not having enough space. And all I could see was another nine months or a year's worth of not getting this done. And it was unacceptable. So what I did, you know, I just said, God, there's got to be a better way. There's something. I need a word from you. So what I did, I I went out and I've got this trail that I built and I started walking on it and I prayed in tongues and I said, Father, I'm praying, believing that I've got the mind of Christ and all I need is a word from you. Father, help me to know what to do. And I started praying in tongues and asking for an interpretation. Within 10 minutes, God told me what to do and solve the problem and we built that $3.2 million renovation without a loan without taking out any money, and at the same time had the largest increase in expenses going on television that we had ever had. We added something like a hundred dollars to $200,000 a month to our regular bills and brought in $3.2 million in 14 months and got it done because I got a word from God. Man, that's awesome. And you know what? Every one of us, when you come into a tight place, if we just understood what these scriptures says, instead of saying, oh God, would you please speak to me? You ought to approach it. Father, thank you that you have already spoken to me. You've already given me wisdom and prudence. I've got the mind of Christ. I know all things, but I needed to get out of my spirit and into my brain. So you start praying in tongues and, and ask for an interpretation and boom, all of a sudden things start working. It's so much easier to draw out what you believe you already have than it is to try and got, get God to give you something that you don't have. That's right. When you start saying, oh God, I believe you can speak to me. You haven't, but you can. <laughs> well, then you know what? You're starting from a position of unbelief and saying, I'm going to get to a position of faith. But when you start over here and say, Father, thank you that you have already spoken to me. I already have the mind of Christ. I know all things. And now I'm just drawing it out. You've started from a position of faith. It's a much stronger position. I don't know if that's helping you, but that's good stuff. In verse 9, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of His will. Now this is talking specifically about the mystery of the will of God dwelling in us, us being God-possessed, being one body, Jew and Gentile. But you could apply this to all kinds of things. Did you know God told us not to be ignorant, but understanding what the will of the Lord is? Ephesians chapter 5, around verse 16 and 17. And yet, how many people, we go through life and we even sing songs about further along we'll understand more, we'll understand all about it. Further along we'll understand why, but right now we're just a poor wayfaring pilgrim. We can't know the things of God. We don't understand. Most of us have embraced walking through life without knowing God's will for us. And this says He has. He's already done it. Made known unto us the mystery of His will. It's in the Spirit and you just have to draw it out. Can you understand here the things that He's saying? This would transform our life that instead of saying, Oh God, please show me Your will. If you started praising Him and saying, Father, thank You. 
that I know you have already revealed your will to me, that in the spirit man, I know all things. I know what your will is. Father, I'm just going to sit here and pray in tongues and meditate and keep my mind on you until the revelation knowledge that is already present on the inside of me begins to affect my understanding. And if you just started praising God and believing that God was faithful and had already done these things, what a Great way that is instead of approaching it like, Oh God, I've asked you a million times and you haven't spoken to me yet. Where are you? What's wrong? Why, God, why don't you move in my life? How come you speak to Andrew? How come you speak to somebody down here and you never talk to me? Man, if I was God, I'd just make you a pile of ashes right there. Just, it's a good thing I'm not God. It's just griping and complaining, murmuring. That's what a lot of us call prayer. It says, He has made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance." Again, how many times have you heard, oh, when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be. And we talk about what it's going to be like in heaven. And then our salvation is going to be wonderful. Then our inheritance happens. The truth is you already have an inheritance. You have already obtained it. In the spirit realm, you are right this moment exactly the way you will be in eternity. One third of your salvation is over. You have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in you bodily. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. You are the, have the fullness of the Godhead in you. Of His fullness have all we received. John chapter 1 verse 16. In your spirit you've already got these things. You've already got an inheritance. You aren't just a spirit. You have a soul and a body. And so you need to get this out of just the spiritual realm into your emotions and into your physical body. But it helps so much to understand that, God, you've already blessed me with all spiritual blessings. I've already got these things. I'm already adopted. I've already predestined. I've already got wisdom. I've already got these things. You've already shown me your will. Father, you have already given me this inheritance. And now, instead of praying, oh, God, please touch me and do something, you start releasing through faith what God has already placed on the inside of you. Totally different mindset than what most Christians have. It says that uh, in verse 11, "...in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ." That's what God has predestinated you to. God wants you to glorify Him. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to be healed. He wants you to be prospered. He wants you to be able to witness to people, to lay hands on the sick and to minister and do things more than you want to do it. And yet we feel like we've got to plead with God. You know, when I first got started in the ministry, it was popular to take a ministry into the back room before you got up to preach and everybody would lay hands on you and pray and start begging God, Oh, God, anoint Andrew tonight. Oh, God, come and speak through Andrew. Oh, God, touch him. Oh, God, speak to him. Show him what to do. And I've often had pastors say, Do you want to go into a back room and pray before the service? And I tell them, No. 
And they'll say, what's wrong? Why not? And I say, look, if I hadn't got it by now, I'm not going to get it in the next ten minutes. Amen. (laughs) Jesus stood in his hometown and he said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me. Past tense, already done. Boy, what a liberating thing. Instead of every time you get up to say, oh God, would you please anoint me? Oh God, would you please speak through me? Oh God, would you please do something? What a blessing to just say, Father, you would have been unjust to have called me to do something. I was an introvert. I couldn't even look at a person in the face and talk. I was total introvert. And God called me to speak in front of millions of people. You know what? God would be unjust to call me to do something that I can't do and expect me to do it in my own power. If He calls you, He also provides you with an anointing. And instead of asking God to anoint you, you need to believe that, Father, if you've called me, then you've also equipped me and you've anointed me. And so instead of going into the back room and saying, Oh, God, please anoint me, I just stand up and say, Thank you, Father, that the anointing that you have placed upon me abides within me. And I just get up and speak and God blesses and people's lives get changed. What a great way of living instead of asking God to be with you. Thanking Him that He'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's a better way of living. And so in verse 13 it says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel means good news. It's more accurate probably to say it means the nearly too good to be true news. But notice it says that you heard the good news of your salvation. Not the good prophecy. It's the good news. It was already done. Jesus already died. When you come to be born again, you don't ask God to save you. The truth is He's already saved you. He's already forgiven you. Man, I'm going to drop a bomb right here on some people, but did you know that the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation, that word means the atoning sacrifice, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says that Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world. That's not the message that the church is preaching by and large. The church is saying, repent and pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins. But the truth is, your sins are already forgiven. And not only Christians, unbelievers' sins have been forgiven. Somebody said, well, what are you saying? Are you saying that everybody's saved? No, because not everybody has put faith in what God has done. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. You have to put faith in what God has done. But God has already paid for the sins of the whole world. It is not the sin of adultery and homosexuality and lying and stealing that is going to send a person to hell. You know what will send a person to hell? Is not accepting Jesus as the forgiveness of their sins. People are going to stand before God and give an account for what they have done with Jesus. And if they didn't accept Jesus, well, then I believe that, yes, there will be a punishment and an accounting for their sins because they voided it. But the truth is that their sins were paid for. Our sins are paid for, is what this says. We heard the good news. You know why it's so easy to get saved? Because somebody didn't tell you that if you will do this and this and this, then Jesus will come and die for your sins and forgive you. If it would have been presented that way, most of us would have thought, oh, he wouldn't do that for me. 
and we wouldn't have had faith for it. But when it's presented that it's already done, He's already died for you. He's already made the atonement. Before you were ever born, before you ever sinned, Jesus already paid for your sins. Now it's just a matter of believe and receive or doubt and do without. You have to make this choice. See, when it's presented that way, it's news. It's already done. Well, if He's already done it, I might as well receive it. If He's already done it, there's no doubt that He would do it. But when it comes to healing... Most people don't see that God has already healed them. They think that the Lord can heal them. And if they will pray hard enough and if they'll be in faith hard enough, then the Lord might heal them. And so they get on this treadmill and start trying to do all of these things, but they don't move into the same realm of faith because they don't see it as already done. I don't know if you get that or not. You know, there was a time when Jamie and I first got started in the ministry and we were so poor we couldn't pay attention. I mean, we were struggling. We would go weeks without eating. And I was pastoring a church. I was talking to this brother over here who just started a church and he says, all hell broke loose. (laughs) And I said, welcome to the ministry, amen. (laughs) And when Jamie and I first got started in ministry, I tell you, we struggled. We had some serious problems. And it was all self-inflicted. It was because of my own stupidity. But nonetheless... My heart was right. My head was wrong. And anyway, we were struggling. And here I was, the pastor of a church, and the Bible that I had was the one that I took through Vietnam with me. And the thing was mildewed. It had water on it. I had written on it so much. It was held together with scotch tape. And entire books of the Bible were gone, not just verses. Books of the Bible were gone. And I was pastoring a church. And I'd say, let's turn over to, and it wasn't there. That's one of the reasons I can quote so many scriptures, because for the first year or so, I just had to fake it. I'd say, let's turn over, and I'd just quote it to them. And anyway, I finally decided that, you know what, I needed to believe God for a new Bible. And we didn't have enough money to get a Bible. And some of you, I know when you think about, you know, being poor, you think, well, I've got $1,000 in the bank, but i got $2,000 worth of bills. Well, when we were talking, we didn't have food. We didn't even have a phone. We couldn't afford a phone. We didn't have anything. We didn't have uh, enough money to put antifreeze in our car, so our block cracked on our car. And I mean, we were just poor. If we would have died, it would have taken weeks for somebody to have found us. Um, it was bad. And so when I say that it took me six months to believe for 20-something dollars to go buy a Bible, I mean that is not an exaggeration. It took me six months to believe and to get enough money extra that I could go buy that Bible. And during that period of time that I was believing that God was supplying my needs, I just finally said, you know, sooner or later, I've got to start seeing a manifestation of this. I've got to see some visible proof that what I'm believing works. And I I just drew a line in the sand and I said, if I can't believe God, if I'm the pastor of a church and if I can't believe God for enough money to get a Bible, then I don't need to be pastor. And so this was a live or die, sink or swim deal with me. And I started believing God. It took me six months. And during that period of time, I mean, I bet you that I didn't go more than 10 minutes during my waking hours that I didn't have some negative thought like, it'll never work. You'll never get it. You're going to have to get out of the ministry. It's not going to work. 
some man of God you are. You can't even believe for $20 to go buy a Bible. You're a failure. I battled thoughts like that just constantly, and I had to fight and throw them down. But, you know, eventually I got enough money. I went and bought a Bible. I had my name engraved on it. And I walked out of that bookstore with my Bible in my hand. And the strangest thing, I instantly quit doubting that I'd get it. (laughs) As soon as I had that Bible, I mean, I had every 10 minutes, I had some thought, it won't work, you won't get it, you're going to fail. But as soon as I had it, I quit doubting that I'd get it. Some of you are thinking, well... Of course you quit doubt. If you'd got it, why would you doubt that you'd get it? That's my point. You know why some of you are saying, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed. And then your next thought is, oh, I'm going to die. I wonder if my insurance is paid up. I wonder what kind of a funeral they're going to have. And then you catch yourself and you go back, no, by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed. Amen. And then you have some negative thought. You know why you're vacillating like that? Because you don't see healing as already being done. You think it's out there and if you'll do everything just right, maybe God will heal you. But if you could see, like it says here, that you have already. It goes on to say later in this chapter, I'm not even going to get there tonight, but it goes on to say in this same first chapter, it says that God has already abounded towards you with the same power that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not out there. It's on the inside of you. If you knew that you had raising from the dead power on the inside of you, why would you doubt that you'll get what you've already got? If you're doubting and wondering, will you pray for me and maybe God will heal me tonight? If you're thinking that way, it's because you don't know that you've already got it. You don't know what you have in Christ. You don't see it as being an accomplished fact. See, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. You think that people are saying, I believe God can heal. Well, the devil believes God can heal. That's not faith. It's not faith to say, I believe God can heal. God can set free. God can do anything. That's not faith. Faith is to believe that God has already done it. And He's put that power on the inside of you. The Bible doesn't tell you to pray for the sick. There are instances in the Bible where people prayed for the sick. It says that if you are sick, call for the elders of the church and have them anoint you with oil. And then it says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. So I'm not saying that you don't pray for the sick. We're going to pray for the sick down here. But we weren't commanded to pray for the sick. We were commanded to heal the sick. There's a huge difference between healing the sick and praying for the sick. See, one of them is, oh God, we are nothing and we can do nothing. But we believe you can do all things. If it please you, if it be your will, heal this person for Jesus' sake. You'll die praying that kind of a prayer. (laughs) But the other prayer is to say, Father, thank you that you have abounded towards us with this power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. And you told us to speak to this mountain, to speak to this problem, which implies that you've already given this to us. You told us to go heal the sick. So now in the name of Jesus, I thank you that I have this power. I use the power and the authority that's in my tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. And I now curse this sickness and command it to die. I release health in the name of Jesus. 
There's a huge difference between you taking your authority and commanding something, believing God's already done His part and He's going to back your words up. You can enforce what He's done. There's a difference between that and saying, Oh God, would you please come and touch this person? Huge difference. Huge difference. And this is basically where the body of Christ is divided between those who it's working and those who it's not working. And they say, well, I believe that God heals today. Why hasn't He healed me? Because you believe He can heal, but you don't believe He has done it. You don't believe that He has equipped you. And so you are coming to God, acting like He hasn't done anything, asking Him to do it, and actually it's a statement of unbelief. That's true. So in verse 13 again, it says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom ye also, that after ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest. The word earnest here means a down payment. You know, when you buy a house, you have to put earnest money down, something to guarantee that the rest of it is coming. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the earnest, the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise uh, of His glory. Now notice in verse 14 it says we are waiting for the redemption of the purchased possession. If you go back to verse 7 it says in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 is this exact same sentence. Colossians and uh, Ephesians are basically parallel books. Everything that is said in one and said in the other. It's just in a little different terminology. And so it says in verse 7 that you have already got redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 14 says that you are waiting for the redemption of the purchased possession. Now think about this. This can't be a contradiction because it's the same author that is saying this in the same book in just one, one sentence right behind the other. So you know by the closeness of these two statements that he's not contradicting himself. One says you have redemption already. The other one says you are waiting for the redemption. So what is this talking about? And I want to spend some time on this. I'm probably going to have to finish this in the morning. Matter of fact, I know I will. But let me just say this, that again, if you've watched my programs like this week or if you've heard my teaching on spirit, soul, and body, this is the key to understanding this. There are different redemptions that we're waiting on. There are different parts of us being redeemed. In verse 7, when it says that we have already redemption, the forgiveness of our sins... That's talking about in the spirit realm. In the spirit, you have been forgiven of all sins. Past, present, and even future tense sins. Sins that you haven't even committed yet have already been forgiven and paid for. All of your sins. Tomorrow, I'll, I'll try and verify this. If I turn over there to Hebrews and start on this, it'll take me 30 minutes to an hour. So I'll do this in the morning. But you already have been forgiven of your sins. But there is also a soul that has been purchased and a body that has been purchased. The atonement has been made. The blood of Jesus has been spilt for you, spirit, 
soul, and body. But only your spirit redemption is complete. Your spirit is the only part that is finished, over, and complete. Your body and soul haven't been redeemed. You are waiting for the redemption of this purchased possession. Look over in Romans chapter 8, and it uses this uh, same terminology. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 23, it's talking about how that the whole creation, the animal creation, the um, plant creation, all of creation was plunged into the same corruption that mankind was plunged into. God subjected us all to corruption so that we could all be uh, redeemed at the same time. And so he's talking about that. And in verse 23, Romans 8, 23, it says, And not only they, talking about this creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. See, the redemption of our body hasn't taken place yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're familiar with that, the whole chapter is talking about the resurrection and how it says over and around verse 50, it says this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And it talks about that we must be changed. All of us have to be changed. This physical body, the way that it is, subject to corruption cannot enter into God's presence and into eternity. So there has to be a redemption of this body yet. Now see, one of the reasons I'm teaching on this is because the word redemption to us is a word that we just throw in along with salvation and everything else and it doesn't mean a lot. But the word redeem, like... um, I'm not sure what you would use as a modern day example of this. Those of you that are my age can remember like green stamps or something. S&H green stamps. Anybody remember that? Boy, y'all are old. (laughs) But you know, my mother, we went and bought, bought groceries and she'd get these green stamps and she'd give them to me and I'd put them into these books and then you would go to a redemption center. S&H Green Stamp Redemption Center is what it was called. And they had all of these things in there, lamps, toasters, appliances, just anything you want. It was a store, but instead of using money, you had to take your green stamps that were in these books and you'd cash them in. And, you know, this lamp was worth, I don't know, five books or whatever it was. And so anyway, she'd give all those stamps to me and I'd take them and I'd go and get stuff at the S&H Green Stamp. When you got those stamps, what those stamps did, they said that you had made a purchase, that the money had been spent, and those stamps were your earnest or guarantee that a purchase had been made. But you didn't really want the stamps. You wanted what those stamps could obtain. And so you had to redeem those stamps. You had already purchased the stamps, but then you redeemed them. You traded them in for something else. Well, similarly, the Lord paid for our glorified body. Jesus died not only spiritually, but He died uh, soulishly in the soulish realm, emotional realm, and also in the physical realm He suffered to buy you redemption 
spirit, soul, and body. But your spirit is the only part that is complete. Well, to me, that is really significant because most people don't see that any of our redemption is complete. They see it as being off in the future somewhere. And when we all get to heaven, then our spirit's going to be changed and all of these things. But if you look at these two verses, Ephesians 1, 7 says the forgiveness of our sins, that redemption is already passed. It's already been redeemed. Your spirit is already changed. Forgiven. It's over. You are as pure in your spirit as Jesus is. I'll show you more scriptures on that tomorrow. You are as forgiven right this moment as you will ever be. And since God is a spirit, John 4, 24 says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, then that means that God isn't looking on your outer appearance. He's not looking at your actions and at your thoughts and at your failures and your zits, and your ugly, and your all of the things that we've got. God looks at you in the Spirit, and in the Spirit, your Spirit is redeemed. It's a brand new Spirit. It is completely forgiven. And according to Ephesians 1.13, when you got that new Spirit, according to Ephesians 4.24, it was created in righteousness and true holiness. Then Ephesians 1.13 says it was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That born-again Spirit is forgiven, it's already redeemed, and it's sealed. So that when you sin, that sin doesn't penetrate the seal. It doesn't violate your spirit. Your spirit doesn't fluctuate and get corrupted over and over and have to get born again again. I'll share scriptures with you tomorrow morning that you are eternally redeemed. Eternally redeemed. Not redeemed till the next time you blow it. Not redeemed till the next time you sin. And then you got to get back into the good graces of God. You are eternally redeemed. Your spirit salvation is over. You're redeemed. It's already cashed in. You're identical to Jesus. Your spirit's perfect. A million years from tonight, your spirit will be identical to what it is right now. Your spirit doesn't change. The only thing that's going to change is your soul, your ability to understand and perceive, and you'll get a glorified body. This body, we're still waiting on the redemption of our body. We can receive it in part as you believe God. You can receive healing and you can receive things. But ultimately, this physical body is going to decay and we've got to get a glorified body. And this soulish realm is going to have to change. It says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Now we only know in part, but then we'll know all things, even as also we are known. And so you are going to be changed in the soulish realm, in your personality, mental part, You're going to be changed in your physical body. But the good news is that your spirit is already redeemed. You are already forgiven. You are already what you are going to be in the future. And tomorrow I'll share with you some more things about what happened. But man, what a tremendous thought. That one-third of our redemption is complete. One-third of our redemption is over with. And people don't understand that. They'll pray and say, Oh God, please make me holy. According to Ephesians 4.24, You are created righteous and truly holy in your spirit. You're already holy. You're pure. 
And God is a spirit. He's looking at you in the spirit. He's not looking on that outward man. He's looking in the spirit. And He sees you perfect. According to these verses we read, we are holy and without blame before Him in love. If we just really understood what this is saying, I guarantee you this would put a shout in a corpse. This would make you begin to start rejoicing that, man, God loves me. I'm holy. I'm pure. But the problem is we go look in the mirror and think, I'm ugly. I'd... And then you search your emotions and I act ugly and I just, I think wrong. Oh God, what's wrong with me? You're looking on that outward appearance, but God sees you redeemed. And He's looking at you and He sees you perfect. How can two walk together except they be agreed? We need to start thinking the way that God thinks. We need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. We need to recognize that we have already been redeemed through His blood with the forgiveness of sins. Sin is not an issue with God. Sin has been literally obliterated. And every time I say something like that, I get a lot of people angry at me and a lot of people say, so you're making light of sin. No, I believe that people who are making a big deal of sin are making light of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe sin's terrible. But you know what? I believe, if you had a scale here, one of those balanced things with a fulcrum in the middle and a scale on each side, if you put the sin of the entire human race for all eternity on one side, one drop, of the blood of the Lord Jesus is more than enough to tip the scale. Jesus is so holy and so pure that His sacrifice is infinitely greater than the uh, transgression of the entire human race. And if we could understand that, I'm not saying that our sins are okay and that it's just all right to go sin. Sin's a terrible thing. And it's, it's an inroad of Satan into your life. I'll be balancing all of these things as we go through this. But I'm telling you that the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has already redeemed you. The word redemption is the payment of a ransom. And it's already been done. You've already been ransomed. You don't have to be re-ransomed every time you sin. You don't have to get back under the blood every time you sin. In the spirit realm, God is a spirit. He's seeing you in the spirit. You are already made perfect. He's already in love with you. It's His good pleasure. Man, these things, it's already done. If we could just get a revelation of this, what a difference it would make. And you know, I, I'm going to go through this the rest of this week, but starting in verse 14, after he says all of these things, you know what his prayer is? He starts praying, oh God, give them revelation of what they already have. He doesn't pray and ask God to touch them and give them something new, but rather give them revelation. If you've heard the things that I've said tonight and say, this sounds nearly too good to be true, but how do I get hold of this? All you got to do is pray this prayer. And put your name in there. And instead of saying, I bow my knee before the God and Father that He would grant you 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. Instead of reading it that way, just say, I pray and believe that God is granting me. Put your name in there. Granting Andrew or whatever your name is. The spirit of revelation that Andrew will know what is the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The exceeding greatness of his power towards Andrew. I've prayed that prayer in Ephesians 1, 14 through the end of the chapter hundreds of times and asked God to show me what I have. And you know what? Just little by little, I begin to start understanding and receiving it. And I'm still learning. But if you're struggling with this, that's a prayer. All you got to do is pray the prayer. You know that this prayer has to be right. It's in the Bible. Paul prayed it. It's bound to be a scriptural prayer. Just stick your name in there and pray it for yourself. Oh, God, open up the eyes of my understanding. Quit asking God to give you what He's already given you and just start praying for a revelation of what God has already done. God's already given you the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That ought to be enough for your hangnail. That ought to be enough for your headache. I guarantee you, we just don't understand what we've got. And so what we're starting, what I've approached tonight is, is just making the statement that one-third of your redemption is over. It's complete. It's done. And yet the average Christian is constantly, every time they sin, going back and, Oh God, would you please redeem me? Which the Bible says in Ephesians 1, 7, Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. They're asking to be redeemed when the Bible says you've already been redeemed. You're asking for something that you've already got. Man, we need to start with believing that God has redeemed you, that the redemption of your soul, it says over in Psalms chapter 49, I forget the exact verse, but it says the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever. That's old English for saying it, there isn't enough money to pay for it. You can't redeem yourself. God does it and it's over. Once and for all, redeemed. You can't be re-redeemed. Your spirit's already been redeemed. It's a done deal. And I'll explain that more in the morning. But that's good news. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you, I believe that if people could get this perspective, that they would start experiencing victory in their life. It would encourage you. It would... Uh, motivate you to get in and start studying the Word and do things, not in order to get God to bless you, but you would start doing it to find out what God has already given you. Build yourself up. It's a total different mindset, and it will make a big difference. Let me ask tonight if there's anybody here who has never been...